I'm Heidi Zuckerman, and this is About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is about art. Hi there. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I was really excited to record this podcast with Kathy Opie. She is someone that I have admired as an artist for such a long time and also as a person. The conversation is very much about leading and learning and an authentic view of what it's like to be alive today and how complicated that is and and how art can not just be a solve for that, but as a way of mediating and navigating and sharing our perspectives. It's fascinating to have to grapple with your own history of images that you've made around your own idealized ideas uh, about how you want the world to be. And then, as we all know, the world is a very fractured, complicated place. And yeah, it needs a lot more talking about it and a lot more exploring. And before we get to the conversation, I just want to take a minute to acknowledge the passing of a close friend of mine, Bush Helsberg, and his company, Best & Co., was the first sponsor of this podcast. So a friend of mine shared with me this Agatha Christie quote yesterday when I learned of his passing, and I just wanted to add it to this podcast as a kind of memorial. Quote, I like living. I have sometimes been wildly, despairingly, acutely miserable, racked with sorrow. But through it all, I still know quite certainly that just to be alive is a grand thing. Thank you for sitting in that moment of silence with me in memorial to a great man who has left the planet tragically early. And now, a way to be kept company with all the challenges and opportunities and grace that life brings. You know, I was really looking forward to our conversation today. One of the things that I've always been attracted to in in your work is I feel like it has this authenticity and vulnerability and like a willingness to kind of show up and take a real look at how things are and who people are. And I guess I wanted to just start there with sharing that reflection and asking about that for you. Well, thank you for that. I mean, that is something first and foremost that I hope to do within the work is this idea of humanity and like mapping and tracing and tracking and 
creating relationships to ideas around representation. And photography is particularly a very interesting medium because of how much it's influenced our culture, both through popular culture as well as journalism. And so to like be a photographer and try to make like large bodies of work on different issues and relationship to ideas of what representation really does is a place of mapping humanity for me. It really is. And I look at it as like tracing, tracking, talking, having conversations, not only within the history of art, widely, not within just photography, but also within the history of of art as wide as range as possible. Do you think people see themselves accurately? No, not necessarily. I mean, I know that as a portraitist. You know, one of the things is, is that I love making portraits, but most of the time, you know, people are really drawn to my portraits, but then when they sit for me themselves, they're like, hmm, I'm not really sure about this portrait of me. And I think that we have such expectations around our own self-image and our own idea of how we take space in society or how we influence or whatever kind of way that we're working within ideas around society that when it comes down to kind of a a picture that another artist makes, I think it's hard for people. Yeah. I mean, for years, my friends wouldn't live with their portraits. They were like, wow, they're really kind of intense portraits. And now my friends, like now that the work is over 30 years old, like the earlier portraits, all want to live with it now. But it took them 30 years of being able to deal with their own image. Yeah, it's such a complex thing, you know, because there's the way we see ourselves, there are the ways other people see us, there are how we want other people to see us, there are learning about ourselves. I don't know, I was just on a call with, I have a coach before this, and I had just this, I, I don't even know how to describe it exactly, but it, it wasn't like a lightning strike moment or anything like that. It just sort of like slowly. Of an epiphany. <laughs> there was an opening, you know, like there was an opening. And like I, you know, I've had some of these kind of epiphanies before or openings before and and they were more emotional. And this wasn't like that. It was just kind of like a, like a knowing, like, oh. Like an acknowledgement and an inner knowing. Yeah. Like, huh. Like, that's why these things have been the way they are or, you know, that people respond to me in this way because of what happened to me. I know those moments. I had one at 1.30 this morning where I was just like woke up from 1.30 to 4, laying in bed, trying to go back to sleep. And I was just like, well, let's have some intellectual thought instead of worry. (laughs) Yeah. And so I just started writing an article in my head because I'm not a writer but I write a lot in my head. Like I'm constantly writing in my my brain space, but I don't necessarily put pen to paper. Uh, I tend to look at things like, you know, from all sides of my brain and then approach it through photography. Do you want to talk about what you were thinking about at 1.30 in the morning? Yeah, I mean, it was really about queer family. You know, I, I don't know if you know this, a good portion of the art community knows this, but Julie and I have been divorcing for a year and a half now. So, and it's still not finalized. And it turned out to be not the fairy tale divorce that I had hoped for. Like, I really assumed, like, 
you know, we did queer family, like we had the dad involved, we had this huge, massive community, like thinking about what family is. And then my divorce, I feel like has been distilled to like a 50s heterosexual bad B novel in a certain way. And so I was traversing this kind of relationship of queer family and that history and that you can build all of that with all the best intentions and yet still this kind of pervasive model of like the heterosexual norm of what family values are has creeped in underneath my doormat so to speak where I don't believe in any of this ideologically but that's like what is happening to my family in in this divorce in which that'll probably be unfortunately split for the rest of my life after 21 years and the grief around that is so expansive but then I've decided to take the grief and instead turn it into other ways to thinking about why is this in society that I have built this idea of representation from my queer body through a lens. And then I still have what is considered like the most obnoxious, you know, divorce. (laughs) So it just, it was nice to have an intellectual kind of conversation in my mind versus like the pain of what it is to, to lose a family. Yeah. You know, I am divorced and my parents are divorced, and I have a lot of friends who are divorced, and I have friends who thought that they were going to have the one divorce that, you know, the fairy tale divorce, right? You know, they'd be able to mediate, they, you know, wouldn't have to spend a lot of money, they could be friends, they could have shared holidays. I think that, unfortunately, my experience is that my divorce was the worst of me. It was the time in my life when I felt the most threatened, the most vulnerable, the most attacked, because it was at its essence the things that I care most about, right? Like my kids, the danger, the threat of being removed from my kid's life for any portion of time, like having to share custody or anything that went to my core of what I most value. And so it was so threatening and so awful. And then the secondary thing is money. And for me, money was about how hard I worked, the life that I built, being financially independent, being able to make my own decisions. Contemporary woman who's a feminist, which is a really different relationship to money than the divorce laws of the 50s. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I understand. Yeah, um, no, it's fascinating. It's, a, you know, I mean, it, it will have an end date, I realize, but to go through something that you would think would be, oh, it'll be three mediations and a hug and a, okay, see yeah. you at Thanksgiving has turned right. into yeah. like, whoa. <laughs> so yeah. it goes to the heart of my work too. All right. And that's where it's hard to separate the artist from what is personal from all of that aspect, because artists do, as you open this, about a vulnerability, about this relationship of putting yourself out there to the public with all of your ideas. 
And so it's like, I've had to grapple with the now 30 years old, it was made in 1993 of the stick figure girls carved on my back and my longing for domesticity. You know, that was my way to queer that conversation or, you know, make it about lesbian visibility to a certain extent. But then also like to now have to realize that I'll be 62 tomorrow and that at 62 it's like oh I had that story I had that chapter I did it for all of these reasons and I was able to obtain it so now what Oliver's launched all of that has happened so what is the next chapter of those idealized longings also that you know came from this queer body of mine and it's, it's fascinating to have to grapple with your own history of images that you've made around your own idealized ideas uh, about how you want the world to be. And then, as we all know, the world is a very fractured, complicated place and, yeah, it needs a lot more talking about it and a lot more exploring. Yes. And I was thinking about that image today. I had read about... Oliver saying that that was his favorite work because he is part of of having that become real for you. And I was really touched about that. And I was thinking about, I don't know that I've talked about it on the podcast, but I think I talked about it on someone else's podcast that I had this Buddhist therapist that said to me that, you know, like having kids is in a way like the most self-focused way to deal with your past. However, like it works, right? It gives us this opportunity to go back and like recreate a childhood that we would have wanted for ourselves to mother in a way that like we wanted to be mothered. No, that has been the biggest thing about me having a child is I had a very complicated childhood that, you know, had a history of abuse in it. And when I had Oliver, there was all these fears that you hope that you don't repeat certain patterns of trauma. And then I realized that, like, no, all my capacity of mothering and everything I have is totally there without having that fear. But then I realized at about age eight, which is when a lot of things started happening to my body, like holding my own son's body at eight made me realize how vulnerable an eight-year-old is but also like how carefully I'm caring for this body and honoring it. And that was like really healing for me. I think that there was more healing than all the years of talk therapy, actually. You know, I have thought a lot about this idea of eight years old and how like our future selves are, are really defined in that moment. But I've thought about it in terms of experiences and interests. And, you know, I have my own story about what I did when I was eight, which is basically exactly what I do now, cataloging objects from picture postcards. <laughs> so, like, I know that happened, but I hadn't thought about the body. And that's what happens to me. Like, I'm super cerebral, right? Like, I'm in my head first and my body's like an afterthought. I often just said, no, I don't have a body. I'm just a floating brain, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but go ahead. What was your What was your thought? Well, it's just a really interesting addition to the thinking around this is what's the eight-year-old body like and what happens to like our sense of self at that time as well. So I, I just, I hadn't even thought about that. 
Yeah, I think that the sense of self is being so developed at eight, but then if the body is harmed, it's a very complicated set of issues to then deal with. And you're almost removed from having an idealized self because you have to deal with the reality of whatever situation you might be in and you have to negotiate that. And so you become this person and it's interesting to think about in, in relationship to my work. And I've definitely have thought a lot about this while I've been in therapy is that there at nine years old, I wanted a camera because of Lewis Hine and because of child labor laws and because I was going to become a social documentary photographer What's never spoken about within that narrative of me is there was a body that was being harmed as of eight years old. So was the camera actually also a way to bear witness early on? And then what is the first self-portrait of the nine-year-old is me with the muscles and with the flowered pants in front of my house in Sandusky, Ohio. And I, you know, very carefully have not let my family history within my work because I never felt safe about it because of already the persecution that's held over LGBTQ people that I don't want like, oh, well, that's why. That's the reason why she made that work, you know, because we all know as intellectuals, it's much more complicated in that way. But the mapping and the tracing and the tracking started at that time too. And I think that there is something about the idea of transparency and visibility that is so important. And it it is exactly what I'm doing in the new body of work of the Vatican called Walls, Windows, and Blood, in which I'm actually using like the forms of the architecture to also begin to talk about the inability of the Catholic Church to actually be transparent and what is the relationship to Christianity and the body and the blood around that and how it's mixed with my own history and my own work. So I'm going a little bit more global these days on these issues than going even closer to like the core family ideas of my own childhood. It's like, no, this is also a universal experience. Let's look at what hashtag me too has actually really done. You know, I haven't watched the Drew Barrymore, Brooke Shields conversation yet on the couch, but I'm dying to. Because here were these two young bodies used basically by men in Hollywood and and sexualized through their performances. So I'm, I'm actually really happy that these larger conversations are happening because I always felt that it got pushed down to this place of inequality for women as well. And then where is feminism in relationship to hashtag me too? And isn't that actually also a feminist movement, you know, which isn't really talked about? I mean, do you think it's talked about in that way? Not in the broader context, but it's definitely how I've talked about it, you know, myself. And I'm really interested in the in the coexistence of seemingly like discordant or impossible things, right? And so you talking about how you could choose to go deeper into that very first moment of like self-witnessing, knowing that you can do that, you simultaneously decided to look universally at the Catholic Church, right, and the Vatican. And so the knowledge that you can do something often gives you the opportunity do it, of course, but also to not need to do it because it then gets bred into something else. And so with this 
idea of uh, feminism and post-feminism, which is what I wrote my master's thesis on like a long time ago. You um, dug into that wonderful yeah. little comment by Hal Foster. You were like, oh, post-feminism has been <laughs> yeah. invented. Hal, thank you. I had no idea. <laughs> and, <laughs> it was and Hal my, Foster, wasn't it? Am I right about that? I probably, you know, um, and it would be. Yeah, I feel it, like it was definitely a man who coined it. That's what I was going to say. For sure it was a man and like likely it was Hal Foster. And even if it wasn't, like it could be. So, you know, we'll we'll give it to him. But this idea of of being able to choose, you know, within our own ability and privilege, but to be able to choose how we want to spend our time and and what language we want to use and how we can lead from that place of yes and like yes i agree or yes i disagree and you know this this is what i'm bringing into the conversation i read something about where um someone asked you about blood as a as a medium within your your practice too and like where that would come from and you're like duh you know christ Right, and so the um, <laughs> that it, that it's been there for for a long time, and that this is the point when you're now thinking about your next chapter and this idea of like vastness, right? Where do you go? Tattoo um, words on your body like right? vast, <laughs> because you like need to make sure that you are going vast. And yeah, I, I, you know, that's the hardest thing in a, in a weird way in terms of like my job as an artist is how vast can you go and have your audience follow along because you're actually trying to to communicate and it can slip away so easily. So I always like to try to create language that is both iconic and recognizable, but that also it can spin on its axis for it to be reinterpreted in relationship to what we think is iconic. And I use a lot of those gestures within the work so that if you want to just have an aesthetic experience, you can have an aesthetic experience with me. But if you want to decide to go a little bit deeper in terms of histories and ideas of what mapping culture really is about for me, then you can choose to go down those paths. Part of what I think is interesting about this work that you're doing now too is that your work's always been very cognizant of the history of art and you know the history of portraiture and painting in many ways the vatican and italy it is such a source for you know the history of western art yeah right where and, else do we get it from basically you know yeah. you can throw the british in there definitely but <laughs> europe like the notion yes. of civilization from a white European perspective is what the history of Western art is. Yeah. So that that's where you are grounding yourself now and sharing from, I I think is super, super interesting. Oh, well, thanks. I I hope so. We'll see. I mean, the show will open in Napoli in September. And I was told by Thomas Dane the other day when I had a meeting about the exhibition that apparently the head priest who's in charge of, uh, of contemporary art at the Vatican is going to come to the opening. <laughs> so, is, I, you know, that's good. At least they're going to think about things that I'm thinking about. But meanwhile, they're also, you know, he's mounting a David LaChapelle uh, exhibition. So, and the other one was Damien Hirst. 
could be an interesting conversation. Can you talk about the series and can you describe what some of the works look like? Yeah. I mean, once again, the wonderful Robert Maplethorpe Foundation supported a residency for me at the American Academy in Rome. And so the Maplethorpe Foundation has just done incredible things, even supported the Guggenheim show in 2008. So, you know, I'm grateful for foundations actually supporting queer artists. It's really amazing. The theme of the Rome Prize winners that year, and it was during the pandemic, this is like in basically spring of 2021. So Italy hadn't opened up to tourists yet. So I was in a very rare opportunity in which the Vatican had just reopened, but no tourists were allowed in Italy, just as the Colosseum had reopened. Like Rome was just starting to open when I arrived in April. And I was there from April and May in May of 2021 for six weeks. And so the theme of it was cities. And so I've always been fascinated about the Vatican because it's a city of its own governance within a, a very historical city of like all about the history of civilization. You know, I mean, like, let's just say Rome is like that place. Yeah. And so I just decided to map it out in the way that I do. Like, what do I think about this place? How am I looking at it? And so I had with me like three or four cameras and I had a beautiful apartment for six weeks and a huge studio, but I didn't do anything in the studio because I'm somebody who goes out to make work. So I would just sit and look at maps of Rome in my studio and I have photographed at first uh, panoramically like American cities. I did the walls and I was going to map out the entire structure of the walls of the Vatican. And all of a sudden, one day I turned the panoramic camera vertically and realized that I wanted the verticality of the walls. Mm -hmm. And so the walls are probably about a little over six feet tall, and they're going to rest on these marble plinths that were designed by the architect Kati Barkin. And because the walls don't have the right to hang anymore. So using that idea of an installation in a museum of art blocks, Kati's designed these very elaborate ideas of art blocks but with pink veiny marble. And so the black and white walls rest on that. And then there are 14 walls in the body of work. There's 20 windows. And I photographed every single window inside the Vatican Museum looking out. So I mapped the whole entire museum that way. And I would go four days a week for six weeks. And again, there would be maybe five people when I'd get to the Sistine Chapel. And then I photographed, mapped out and photographed every single representation of blood spilt within the art of the Vatican. So that took three cameras, multiple lenses, because everybody assumed that I was just cropping in these detail shots to make these blood grids, because there'll be a grid of photographs for them. But no, I was... I was using long lenses and cropping in, and they're really interesting because it's like the use of the modernist grid, like what modernism did to the grid when you think about Bauhaus movement and also the politics of the grid, right? The right. actual relationship of a grid. And so to reorganize the art of the Vatican into these detailed moments of just blood spurting out of horses and bodies and these grids of only wounds and blood is a really interesting way to take on the story of Christianity. Yeah. Because if we're being humanistic, is this a humanistic betrayal to fight for? Is this why we're in constant religious wars? 
why ideologically we actually keep blaming one another around the idea of the blood of Christ. And so how has this like dogma basically created a crisis in humanity in my mind? I do believe that religion to a certain extent has created a crisis in humanity. And I'm very curious about how that works ideologically in terms of also democracy and what is our relationship to democracy and these ideas of under the Trump administration of the big lie, right? And do we think about, you know, the world being invented in seven or 14 days or whatever as the big lie? And then what is our relationship around just the simplicity of transparency with looking out a window onto Rome? It's just super easy things to slot in that grow into this really large way to think about the site of the Vatican as a pursuer and and preserver of, of ideology of Catholicism. There's so much in there. And you said earlier, we're living in this really complicated time and everything is super complex. And religion is definitely, particularly in America, something that people utilize for justification for all sorts of, I think, problematic and offensive (laughs) thinking. So my boyfriend read Sapiens and he now gives it to everyone, right? I don't know if you've read it, but it is about how there's these systems of organization and they're just belief systems, right? Like nothing's real. They're just systems that people have come up with to try and like control and organize. And then you know, you counter that with people who believe these things, right, which are impossible to to prove. And this idea of disbelief and how you can, I think art can open up that question. Like I talk a lot about the 10,000 hours of staring work um, that Tom Friedman did, you know? Yeah, I know. I talk about that too as a, like, what is that conceptually? Yeah, it's a good piece to talk about. Right? And so it's in there is like the suspension of disbelief. And that's at the core of religion too. And so why do people continue to believe in things that can't be proven, right? And there has to be a why. So it's a solace, it's company, it's for whatever reasons people have. It's just hive mentality that is wired into us biologically, I believe. But then because of, you know, supposedly our intelligence as a species, which I I think of us as a species, by the way. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know? But our intelligence has talked us into all these kinds of crazy ass things. It's just like maybe, maybe we should be like just a notch down here, and we would function a little bit better for the world. You know. <laughs> so. Yeah. Part of what you're getting at, I think, with this series is, and within all of your work, really, is about what art can do to help with some of these huge questions of knowledge, existence, you know, humanity, who we want to be, how we want to be known, how we want to be remembered, you know, what we're here to do, what we can leave behind, the impact that we can make. Yeah. And I think that as the questions get harder for me, as I get older, one would think that the questions would get easier with age, but they actually get more difficult with age is then where within that 
are the gestures around representation actually also following these ideas? And so I really look at the election of Trump as this major changer in my work in the same way that Reagan administration and Bush administration put a different kind of heat under me as an artist. But Trump did it in a way that was like, I've never thought that we would have a person like that stand up for this country. Never. And that, you know, I was born in 1961. So it's like I went through a lot of interesting discourses of political history in America. But, you know, like the forms that I've been dealing with in terms of trying to track this, the first form was the modernist in which the I made the film of the I, pig pen burning down all the iconic houses while collaging and artwork in their studio that they live in. And then I did 2020, which included monument slash monumental as a poem. Before 2020, I did rhetorical landscapes, which were these political collages on these large monitors with photographs of swamps. So the modernist rhetorical landscapes, 2020, and now walls, windows, and blood all really deal with the hypocrisy, but also through ideas of architecture and how we build and how we begin to disseminate images and how images inform us. It's been really challenging and really interesting. I feel like it's a big geeky puzzle that I'm working out in my head all the time, but I would say that I'm not making it easier for myself, (laughs) which is good. I don't think artists should make it easy for themselves. Well, I think that's part of being awake is this being realistic about what you see and then not being able to unsee the things that you see and then being then, you know, shown the next thing. And there's a responsibility, I think, that, you know, that comes with that if you choose to, to lean into it. You share through your work and also you were teaching for such a long time. I know it's coming to an end or did it come to an end? Or No, I'm still chair of the department at UCLA. And I now it was going to be an official retirement of July 1st, 2023. Uh, but the university looped me into a little bit of light service for another year. And okay. so I'm on the masthead until 2020. Four, but maybe I push it to 2025, depending on what happens. As of Monday before this conversation, I was retiring July 1st, 2023. And then I had a phone call with the dean's office that slightly moved those dates, but it still will allow me to do all my research and everything that I was going to do. It'll be just serving on thesis committees and and some fundraising work, which I enjoy, actually. I'm one of those weird people that enjoys raising money for students to have free education. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I, I love fundraising too for things that I believe in. It's a for me a very empowering role to be able to, I think, help make things I believe in happen. So I understand that. And yeah, it's called having a vision and being able to like fulfill your ideas of a vision. And mine is financial literacy for artists. And it's like, we can all teach artists how to make work. And we all know that artists are really brilliant. But how does an artist feel empowered within their own way of going from a student to an artist? And then what roles does the artist play? And where are their 
kind of particular politics within that. And that, as you know, being a museum director is completely a what is aligned to what the conversations are happening in institutions right now. And they're really important conversations to have. That's what I've leaned into the last two years being chair is what is my responsibility as an educator, not just to having them articulate their ideas around what they're making, but also be able to understand financial literacy through their practice. I love that. And it's interesting because it's something that I have been talking about for a long time. There's a an arts organization I sat on the board for a long time called Artadia. I said, I'll, I'll come on the board with the thing that I, I want is in addition to giving money to artists, I think that we should have as part of the organization teaching artists financial literacy, you know, connecting artists to, to money managers, to attorneys, to how to get a mortgage to, you know, buy a home or buy a studio. How to get business loans. Like we're small businesses. One of the, my biggest pet peeves as an artist, and I don't mind giving, I believe in philanthropy, but I give probably easily three, $400,000 a year in art, you know, to organizations, but I'm only allowed to write off the material. And that isn't cool because I should be valued just as much as a philanthropist as the other person writing the $85,000 checks. It doesn't make me stop giving to organizations, but it's it's not fair in that same way. I've used my role on the Association of Art Museum Directors Board to lobby the government to change the tax laws you know, around these gifts, but it hasn't happened it's really important to use our voices for advocacy around these around these issues. Yeah, because I think it makes the artist feel less of a philanthropist than we really are. And that's a problem. If I'm giving at least $300,000 away a year, I'm a, I'm a major philanthropist. It's important to recognize that. With the Annenbergs in terms of the aquarium and what they're doing in the ocean, I made a whole body of work to help that organization raise money for a beach report cards and things like that. And I loved it that my name was put right underneath Wallace's name because I was able to raise a significant amount of money. That doesn't show up on my tax form. And I I feel fairly insulted by that as a cultural producer. Yeah, as you should. I think having real conversations around equity and who's being asked to do what are really important. I talk a lot about, you know, all the things we ask for from artists and from artwork and what is that role. I I love that you're staying to help. Yeah, obviously I've served on multiple boards. I completely Mm -hmm. believe that through education as well as public institutions that we do serve a broader audience and it's very important to support and we have to support. I have a very hard time with the multiple conversations of like, you know, what is clean money out there? As I imagine you as a museum director have very interesting conversations about it. And it's like, well, what is clean money? Yeah, let's let's talk about it. You know, Uh, let's actually like if we're talking about transparency, then let's be transparent. But let's also realize within that transparency that this is the only way that institutions can survive. And so would you prefer it not to survive? <laughs> so it's a really complicated thing. And it's but it's such an interesting conversation to be a part of. And I think that 
watching how institutions have changed even in the last, you know, if, if we say that the Whitney biannual of 1993 was the woke biannual, to look at then the 30 years of institutions and how they have shifted in relationship to what they show and so forth, I do see progress. I don't yeah. see progress for women artists in terms of being equal money makers. No, mm-mm, don't see that. That report was really bad. Yes. So I'd love to ask you to talk a little bit about museums. And you had board service at MOCA. Started at the Hammer with Annie when she, I was on her first board of advisors when she came to town. But yeah, MOCA, the only board I serve on now is the Andy Warhol Foundation, which I love that board. That's an amazing board. Such incredible thinkers. I was just going to ask what, you know, what do you think is, from your experience, a successful board experience? What are you looking for there? Feeling that I'm valuable. Feeling that my experience is actually an interesting perspective. You know, the artist voice is so important to MOCA in terms of its history. And I would say that the eight years that I served on that board, I felt that our voices for the most part were respected, but Mm -hmm. there's always complicated things in every kind of board mixture, but also to be educated, to not only give, but then also be educated. It's really amazing to be in a room full of people that are dedicating their time and their money to think about the institution and what the institution means. And that gets messy and it gets complicated as we know, but those conversations are so important to the identity of any place. And, you know, I did a big strategic plan last fall with my faculty where we did a true like vision kind of, what do we imagine the UCLA art department kind of to be, which I learned from being on boards. I've been able to use a lot of what I learned in that situation as being chair. And I found that those experiences are really valuable for me to think about what I'm doing as an educator. Leadership is a very gratifying role and it takes practice. And for me, like a big part of practice is watching other people. I think that, you know, the boardroom when done right is a place of not just giving, as you said, but a place of real learning from hopefully really smart people and often who have really different experiences than you. Yeah. And I like that. I like that at times it's messy and at times it's inspiring and, but it's all real. It it is still linked with what it is to exist within our world and our society and what it is to take on leadership. And a lot of people won't take on leadership roles because also they're feared that they'll be criticized. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, go ahead and criticize me for being on the board at MOCA for eight years and that it was like a really good newspaper fodder of like, what is wrong with MOCA? And it's like, well, nothing is wrong with MOCA except for the institution is in a place of trying to reevaluate its place within this city. You know, a lot had changed since MOCA had gotten built with both uh, Annie Philbin and Michael Govan coming to town. And that changed LACMA became a contemporary art center. It was an encyclopedic museum. And then the Hammer and and the Getty. And so 
When I think of Mocha, when it was built in the 80s and on the shopping bags of Hughes Market to say, hey, like all of a sudden the Contemporary Art Museum and the real Contemporary Art Museum that we had in this town at that point was Lace. It was Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions. So, you know, one of the best things about being in L.A. for this long is that I've got to watch this history. And including your own history in Orange County with your incredible new museum that you were able, I, I saw many iterations, but I think that at the end, if everybody realizes that everybody should have a membership to every museum, if they can afford it, that was my last goal with MOCA is was like, no, let's do member. Like, I know that it's free, but an institution can't be free without membership. That's one of the big things that we are focused on now with ACMA. It's like amazing that we have this gift for free general admission for the first 10 years. And in a way, you need more money because of that, not less money. You know, you need more members, you need more support with the opportunity for everyone to come. Everyone's coming. 150,000 people have come, you know, in the first six months. And so that means you need more security and you need more visitor services. And that's why you have to track that and then get the membership going because if it's one-time visitors, that's one thing. But then it's like, what do we do? If we're talking about being like good kind of civic duties, right? Good old, like the whole idea of a being good citizen, then you make sure that you have a newspaper subscription. You make sure that you belong to the local museums, you know, because all of that is that you're part of that community that believes in this needing to exist within community and within your neighborhood. And it's really like, it's just messaging that time and time again. So I pay for memberships. I, I can be an artist that says like, oh, well, I'll get in free. I'm in your collection and I have the free card. But guess what? I pay for memberships. I love that. This notion of the good society and, you know, good citizenship and having a library and having a museum and, you know, having parks, places where people can go. That's, that's how communities exist and how they thrive. So, and that's what we're talking about. You know, a museum of the 21st century is a museum based on community. It's a place that you can gather to take your brown bag lunch, to go look at a few things and then sit on the steps in the sun. It has to be that idea of the public square and for the programming to be robust, to welcome the public. And yeah. so it's an interesting thing to balance. I certainly wouldn't want, I take my hat off to you as an artist because I certainly wouldn't want to be a museum director. <laughs> we all do what we can, right? I could never be an artist. So I take my hat off to you too. It's a symbiotic relationship. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask you about just two more things. So I have said for a long time, your surfer series, I mean, I, I love you know, so much of your work. And, and that series just has always spoken to me. I guess I just asked you to talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Why it, it matters to you. For me, before I knew you ever, that work just, I don't know, it, it, it kind of accessed my soul in a, in a way. Well, it's about waiting and it's about community and it's about collectivity. And it's also about the fact that you're not surfing, that it's like, that literally like, you know, at least 65% of surfing is waiting for the next set of waves. And 
again, like how I was talking earlier about what is iconic, we all know the iconic sport surfing photographs, but we don't think of it as like this place of collective meditation and waiting. And I really like to bring my work down at times where it is a place of meditation because that's actually what I'm doing when I'm making it too. Like I had to stand there with an eight by 10 camera on the side with the holder in watching, waiting for that flatness. You know, it's about returning and waiting and patience and everything But it's also related to, again, the site of architecture in relationship to the body, because the surfers never would have been made without the ice houses. So the ice houses were made first when I was doing a residency with the walker. And it was part of American cities in relationship to the specificity of identity of place, which is these little houses that get dragged down on the lake in the winter. They have a horizon line. And then I realized in blizzards, I could get the white on white. I could have a little conversation with Ryman. That's always fun to do as a photographer, try to do that. But the surfers, when I got back to California, because I made those when I was teaching at Yale and I would fly to Minnesota and I was living back East at the time. But when I came home and I was on the PCH again, and I just looked out and I just said, oh my God, these bodies are just like the ice houses. Like they are waiting, they're doing this thing. And if I want to talk about all that level of, because I always believe that landscape is activated, not just within ideas of nature, but it's activated because of our longing for nature as humans. And so I'm always really interested in, well, how do you activate a state of mind? How do you create a way of being? The horizon line became that place for me. And then Helen Molesworth talked about it later so beautifully as I kept making more and more horizon work about that that is my line of democracy, that actually my horizon line is the deep human kind of position of humanity that is about equality. And I like I never thought of it that way. For me, it was a structure and it was a line and it was all that stuff that, you know, it it had to be in the middle. It just had to be in the middle. But I wasn't thinking about the metaphor to democracy in relationship to it. And Helen brought that to the forefront. And that became really interesting for me to think about. It's so interesting. And, you know, I mean, I've grown up around the ocean and surfing and surfers, and I look at the ocean and surfers pretty much every day. I realize that the way that I see that is mediated through my experience of your series. It's like when I did the freeways, everybody's like, always like, you've changed my commute in LA. (laughs) Yeah. Which is incredible. And and the thing that I often think about and talk about and see is the horizon line. And it's so high here, you know, in Orange County. And it's just, it's different than other places. And the other day someone's like, well, isn't it, you know, because you're up high and then you're looking. And I was like, I don't care why it is. I'm just, <laughs> that's the way I see it, you know. It's a mathematical uh, equation. That's what I learned when I was going from the, on the ship, on the container ship from the port of Busan to the port of Long Beach. When I did that journey for 12 miles to the horizon, the yeah. title of the work is that mathematical equation. Because I said to the skipper. Isn't it so interesting that I'm spending all this time photographing the horizon? I saw a shore when I left and I'm not going to see a shore until I get to California. There'll be no shorelines uh, as I cross this ocean. 
And I said, like, it's so messed up around this relationship of time that I keep trying to get to the horizon, but I won't ever get there. And I said, and how far is the horizon anyway? And he goes, well, it's a mathematical equation with the height of the ship. And he goes, let me show you. And so he did it when I don't do math and <laughs> at all. And he was like, you're 12 miles to the horizon on this ship. And I thought, God, that is just so abstract. Like that's about as abstract as you can get. Like there's abstraction in its physicality. I'll never get to it. I'll get to another shore, but I'm always 12 miles to the horizon. I'm about to ask you the question that I ask everyone on the podcast. And before I do, like just that thought, right? The idea that within art, we can have these huge conceptual, like impossible, like beautiful, magical, associative connections and information shared. I'm going to ask you now, like why art matters. Um, and I, and I want you to, to tell me, and, you know, within your answer, that for me is part of why I love art. So that's like the other part of the question, like, why does art matter? And then, you know, like I always think about, I'm constantly having new reasons for why I love art. Yeah, I mean, art is transformation for me. It, it allowed my discombobulated brain and the way that I learn as a very dyslexic person, it allowed me to create a language that I could understand. And even though I'm a voracious reader, I'm not somebody who can read out loud because it all goes backwards. Like I have like definite markers of all of that. And so when I realized that a photograph could do all of these things that I wanted it to do that I could never do on a page of paper with writing down words, it just became this huge door of being able to talk about the things that mattered to me. And so why art matters, it's the language of our culture and our society. And it's pretty clear about that for me, that it can be only about looking, but it can also be about politics. And the idea that can embody so many different forms and have this ability to stretch in all these ways of how we actually communicate is just like the most amazing field to be a part of. I'm lucky, I'm one of the lucky ones. Thank you so much for doing this today. I was really, really looking forward to it. I'll be in touch. I look forward to seeing you. Thanks so much for tuning in. My guest in two weeks is the artist Simpiwe Nazube, and the conversation took place live at the Orange County Museum of Art. You can hear the audience a little bit in the background, and special, incredible bonus, the conversation took place on South African Freedom Day, 27 years later, and he talks about the importance of moving through that time and being here with us on that day. About Art is part of the Why Art Matters Project, a global initiative that makes art accessible, relevant, and transformational. We connect all to art through books, a podcast series, talks, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was mixed by Dominic Anthony Walsh. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal 
of Connecting All to Art. We'll be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you so much for being part of our community.